Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Dear Corner Office. I'm Michelle Hayward, and I'm so happy to have you join us today. We have a guest that is absolutely phenomenal. She has a different experience level coming through diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I'm so excited to introduce Lawaska Noonan to you. Lawaska, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So one thing I love about your experience is that you come from the legal side as an in-house attorney for organizations when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion. And can we talk a bit about, before we get into that, like, where did you grow up? So we can kind of understand, like, how did you get over to legal? But yeah. Um, this, it's, it's, I appreciate the opportunity, Michelle. My um, upbringing is, is interesting in that I'm a first generation American. I'm a black Latina. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. My parents' first language is Spanish. And so I grew up in a Spanish speaking household. Um, and I have, having grown up in New York, have had experiences with many different cultures and many different types of people. And growing up, I just knew that I wanted to do something in support of the people that I lived with and worked with. And so I decided to become an attorney initially because not at all related to DEI, but initially because I wanted to advocate for abused and neglected children. And then in the course of just lived, living my life and working and school, I decided that um, being an in-house attorney would afford me opportunities to work as a volunteer in this space, live a life that I could um, be comfortable with and pay those law school loans because those loans are quite expensive. And um, so I've been in-house at an IT company for over 15 years practicing. And um, I then was able to find my way into DEI. Wow, I, I love that mission to help to help others on the legal side. We often see people do it in education, nonprofits, but I absolutely admire that mission to start helping on the legal side. And yeah, student loans are massive. So I <laughs> understand, absolutely understand. Um, so you're on the legal side of an organization in-house. Was it anything particular that had you move over to the diversity, equity, inclusion part? Um, there were quite a few things. I actually started my, my entry into the DEI space before it was DEI when I was supporting organizations with their affirmative action plans and, and um, becoming EEO compliant with with the requirements as a federal contractor. And in that space, I, I became familiar with the requirements of um, ensuring pay equity and um, diversity representation and diversity hiring and, and making sure that the companies that I worked for had programs and policies in place that supported those, those missions. And that then, it, it steered me into Get having more of a strategic role, right? The EEO compliance work is, is strictly about compliance and doing what's required, the minimum required to be all transparent with you, be uh, doing the minimum that's required to be compliant. But I wanted to do something that was more strategic, something that was more forward-looking and something that was more impactful to the organization as a whole, as well as the employees within that company. And then I, I worked my way into DEI, right? And the objective for me is to work with companies that um, believe in 
the strategic mission of creating inclusive spaces and equitable opportunities for all of their employees. Many companies say that they want to do that, but they don't. Um, their values and their um, actual initiatives may not align with what they say. And so I try to work and encourage those, those companies that I work with as a, as a consultant, but also my employer to put policies and programs in place that align with those values. I love it. Yes, the metrics of EEO, um, affirmative action rather, definitely was an entry point for a lot of, a lot of people into DE, what we now call DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. And maybe, maybe you have the J for justice or the B for belonging, depending where you are um, and your perspective. So I love that, loved how you transition over and how much the space has changed in those 15 years that you've been a part of it. So it has, Michelle. And I, I have to say that um, as an attorney starting my 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 practice in, in what's now DEI, I'm very aware that as an attorney, there are certain um, risks that are presented when you advance DEI initiatives that attorneys often share with their clients, their in-house clients, because the risk of reverse discrimination is a valid one. But it's, it's a valid one that's consistent with all the other risks that businesses take when they are running a business, right? And so I, I think it's important as an attorney not only to raise that um, the risk of reverse discrimination as a risk to your client team, but also to weigh that risk out like you would any other risk in a corporate setting to help them see that the value in advancing um, equity and, and inclusive workspaces in many cases outweigh the risk. And, and like an, any good attorney, you, you do what you can to advise your client on ways in which to mitigate that risk, right? There are things that you can do to ensure that, or rather maybe not ensure, but to mitigate those risks, to help your client still move forward in advancing equity and inclusion in their workspace. And, and keeping in mind that there are those possibilities that someone may raise a claim against you, but the, the benefit, the overall benefit to the organization is by far so worthy of taking that risk. And, and you talked about ways that employers can mitigate risk. What are some of their, their options in risk mitigation? And so every case is different, but um, if I were speaking at a very general high level, um, I, I, I always caution clients on making sure that when they set their um, goals, right? Their um, like hiring goals, for an example, to stay away from definitive hiring goal, like numbers, right? Or quotas, right? You don't want those numbers to be seen as a quota. It is better for it to be seen as an aspirational goal. And that comes in the way in which you communicate that to your managers and how you communicate that to the employees at large. You don't ever want it to be known across your company that you have a quota to hire five black people and, and seven women in X number of, of months or years rather, because then that puts you at risk for higher scrutiny. And, and if by chance you don't achieve that quota, what's the consequence, right? And so when there's a risk for failing to meet that, it, it raises the bar even more that there this may be a problematic number of attainment that makes a, a third party that maybe the person that um, did not get the job or did not 
was not hired by your company have a basis upon which to assert a claim against you, right? Because if you have this as a well-known quota in your company and you fail to hire the white man that may have otherwise been qualified for the position, but he could argue that he did not get the position because you have this quota and your managers know that it's a quota. And if they don't meet this quota, then there's going to be consequences to them. And so they overlooked him. And so you do not want to create a basis for someone to raise a claim against you in that realm. And so what you would want to do after consulting with your attorneys is to um, focus on a, a goal. And I realize that this is a nuanced way of looking at things, right? But there are ways in which you can um, identify, have aspirational goals for achieving um, diversity hiring or diversity representation in your organization. What I like to focus on as one way that I think that really addresses this point is to not necessarily focus on the hiring number, but to focus on the candidate pool. To the extent that we're able as, as advisors of companies to encourage our our employers or, or, or um, clients to ensure that they're expanding the candidate pool to um, have a, a diverse representation and have a, a quote, I'm sorry, have a goal for that number, right? I want 50% of my, my candidate pool to be of diverse dimension, diverse, different diversity dimensions. That's, that's a great way to address the ultimate goal of having more representation in your hiring. If you have qualified candidates of diverse dimensions in your candidate pool, you will find a diverse qualified person, right? It, it just, it's just the numbers, right? So that's one way to do it, making sure that you have a um, diverse candidate pool. Also, um, make sure that your, um, the, the individuals that will be doing the interviews, your diverse, your panel of interviewers is diverse, right? Um, bias is in every decision that we make. And so to the extent that you can have people of different minds and different lived experiences being the decision makers, then they will bring their whole selves to the process. And it, it will not be a, a cookie cutter type um, interview process. And you will be able to um, achieve your diversity representation goals with a diverse panel. Again, there's training that needs to go along with this as well. So this is just a very high level of recommendations, but these are things that companies can consider. I also like to advise um, clients to have scorecards um, during the interview process. If, if your diversity, if your diverse interview panel has scorecards within which they are um, basing the interview, and those scorecards align with the requirements for the jobs, the required skills. And I'm not talking the, the um, subjective things, I'm talking about the, the specific requirements to be successful in the job. And that individual is rated on, and the candidate is rated on the, that scorecard. You then have tools that you can look to to support your decision if ever there's a claim that's asserted against you for reverse discrimination. So these are some of the tools that I recommend my clients and, and my current employer to utilize when they are trying to advance their goals for um, diversity representation and diversity hiring. Thank you for that. I, I have a couple of questions. You brought up this scorecard. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend they look for a template or they create one in-house with some guidance from their legal team? I absolutely believe that it should be unique to the company. I mean, a template can be a great uh, starting point, but um, each job should have a specific job description, right? And the job description should be the basis upon which you use to create the scorecard, 
Now, there may be things in a job description that um, there may be additional requirements that are that are um, that one can identify that supports a, a um, candidate that would excel in the role. Um, but I actually, as I'm talking this out, I think that if it's a requirement that <laughs> would enable someone to be successful in a role, it should be in the state of job description so that people can say whether or not they have those skills. So I would use your job description as a basis upon which to uh, base that scorecard. And um, everyone on the panel should be well-versed in what those skills are as it applies to the role so that they can appropriately measure the candidate that, that they're interviewing. Absolutely. That means actually having hiring managers create a new job description mm -hmm. appropriately as opposed to copy and paste. Agreed. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. The, the other question I have for you was about creating a diverse panel, interview panel. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten any pushback for having to take the additional time to create a panel, especially when it's just starting out in an organization? Michelle, as you well know, in this space of DEI, there's always pushback. I mean, I, there's no function that I have um, that I have held. There's no role that I have held that has more pushback than in this DNI space, not even in my legal position. I know we got a lot of pushback in legal, but anything you wanna do in DEI in an environment where it's never been done before, you're gonna get pushback. And so that's just the norm for this, for this practice. How have you dealt with pushback? What are some things that people that are new to this or they're trying to get executed in organizations? How, what are some things that may have worked, that may work for them that you've seen work work in other places? So for me, at a very high level, when you think about, when I think about the pushback that DEI practitioners face, I, I how I approach the pushback is just asking the person that I'm talking to, the, the, the CEO, the executive, or the other leader in the company, wanting to understand what their goal and objective is. Like, so you say you want to have diversity representation within your organization. I am offering you ways in which we can achieve that goal, but you're pushing back on me. So how, what, what else would you advise we do to achieve your goal, right? Because there, there may be other ways to, to achieve the goal that I'm not aware of. I mean, I, I am not the be all and end all expert in all things DEI. I do know what I do know and I know it well. But sure, there are things that I may not know. So I, I turn it back to my, my leaders who are not certified diversity practitioners, right? <laughs> and I ask them, so, so how would you achieve this goal if, if you don't want to do it this way? And then, and then ask after a pause, well, let's talk about why you don't want to do it this way. What is it about this approach that causes you concern? Well, so that we can maybe address their root cause and, and, and maybe allay any fears or concerns that they have regarding the proposal that I have put forth. But um, the, sometimes, the, you, sometimes you're going to get so much pushback that you just have to let it go and move on to other things because this, there's so many uh, there's so many um, goals that you want to achieve as a DEI practitioner, and you can't get hung up on every one singular instance in which you're getting pushback because you will always get pushback for many of the things that you offer. And um, as, a, as a leader in this space, your role is to 
unfortunately, in some ways, educate people because they're not willing to educate themselves or at least give them the opportunity to understand why things are the way they are and why they need to change and, and try to get out of the status quo. But then also, you also have to preserve your own mental health and well-being, right? Because like I said, there's there's an emotional labor that goes along with this work. And when you constantly get that pushback from your leaders that say they want to do this work, but they're not really supporting the advancement of equity and inclusion in, in, in their workplaces, you have to take a step back and just give your, do some self-care because there's no way that you're going to be able to sustain in this space if you don't do that. Absolutely. Thank you for that. It, it is about progress and how do you make that progress and definitely the buy-in can be difficult on so many different levels. So thank you for that. Now, I have some questions. I love to call them rapid fire questions for you, specifically around diversity, equity, inclusion. So I'm excited about this. I don't, I know some of the guests get nervous, but it's always in good fun. And people are like, I don't know about this. <laughs> so are we ready? We're ready. Let's do it. All right. What is your DNI team's biggest challenge? Um, in this time of the great resignation, diversity hiring is a huge issue, right? And and everyone is is dealing with that. Um, in addition, and I know this is intended to be a rapid fire, so I, my answer should be short. But when I think about big challenges, I think about diversity hiring, but I also think about um, just like we talked about the sincerity of your leaders. Like if you're having to constantly bang your head against the wall because you're getting pushback from your leaders, it's important to know whether your corporate or CEO or your C-suite executives are sincerely committed to your efforts to advance diversity and inclusion in the workspace or, or, or whether it's just performative. Because knowing that helps you also to just know how to approach the situation, know when you need to step back, right? And, and then know whether you're where you need to be. <laughs> because at the end of the day, many DEI, practitioners don't want to be at a place where people aren't don't believe in the mission of equity and inclusion. And so it's helpful to know that. So I think that's a big challenge, like really knowing the heart and the, the desires of your executive leaders is a challenge that I think is, is facing many DEI practitioners. Absolutely. And, and I don't think anybody does rapid response Interrupted. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not, that, that's why it's always interesting to call it um, rapid fire question. And, and as you said, knowing if an organization's leadership is performative or not, it really does help you save time and frustration. It does. And it helps you keep pers your perspective. I mean, we, many of us need to have a job and, and need and have bills to pay. And so knowing where you are and what their objective is helps you to, to come to work in the way in which you can that helps you have a healthy whole existence and helps you to do the job that you need to do. Because sometimes it's just about learning what you need to learn at that place to then take it to the next place that's going to appreciate you and value you and what you have to bring. Absolutely. Next question. What's your all-time diversity and inclusion book on workplace culture? You know, that's such a good question. Um, I just finished up with um, Jennifer Brown's How to Be an Inclusive Leader, and I really enjoy that book. Great. So now you got to know what to add. Go ahead. 
And that would be my answer for that one. Okay. Now y'all know which book to pick up. A recent book, what is a recent book on DEI you've loved? Do you know, I, and because I'm an attorney and words mean something, you use the word loved and I don't, I I haven't loved any book recently, (laughs) but I will tell you that I have been reading a lot about unconscious bias and the one that I have been really um, pleased with and, and, and have learned quite a bit from was um, Pamela Fuller and Mark Murphy's The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. That, that has been a great book to learn from. And, and I want to point out some of these two books, you both have the word leader in, and I think that's mm-hmm. really, really important when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. What DNI or HR podcast delivers the most value to you? I've been enjoying Janice Gassum's Dirty Diversity. It's a podcast and I've really liked it. All right. Who is the DNI influencer that you're most influenced by? I've got to go back to Janice Gassum. I think that um, I relate to her quite a bit. She's a first generation um, American. Her parents, I believe, are from Cameroon. And um, she just, she talks like me, like, like she's, very knowledgeable on DEI, has a PhD. She's a professor, Forbes writer. I mean, she, she's top notch. Um, so I crush a little bit on Janice, guys. She's pretty cool. <laughs> I love it. Where do you hear from the influencer the most? Like LinkedIn, books, podcasts. Where do, where do you find that DNI influencer the most um, often? Uh, Janice does, she writes for Forbes. So she She's got quite a few Forbes articles that she's been writing for a number of years. So I've gone back on to just look her up on a couple of her articles. And of course, I'm connected with her on LinkedIn as well as um, IG. And she does have a podcast called Dirty Diversity. I love it. What's the most overrated diversity and inclusion training trend? You know, that's such an interesting question. When I think of overrated, I think of it's, it's everyone's not everyone. It's many leaders default training. Well, let's go and do this. And that overrated training that I'm referring to is unconscious bias. I think that there, there is value in unconscious bias training when it's done well. And it's typically done well when there are some sort of materials or tools that a participant can take back with them that helps them to apply their learnings to their everyday job. Um, if you don't have a way as a finance person to identify your unconscious bias in your processing of financial documents, then that training has, has not been useful at all. It just doesn't move the needle enough. And so I do believe that there's value in it, but I think people, some place too much value on unconscious bias when there's so many other trainings that I think will be more impactful to anyone really wanting to change the status quo in their workplace. Absolutely. I tell people often there's time for education and then there's time for transformation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You you need to know where you are. Okay. Next question. What's the most underrated diversity inclusion training tactic? I think of um, cultural competence training or or some may consider it a cultural sensitivity. When I say those two words, I think that there's some overlap, right? From a cultural competence perspective, I think that it is invaluable for people to know where they are on the spectrum of um, valuing, uh, understanding who they are, what their lived experiences are, how they bring that to their everyday work, 
as well as how does someone else's lived experiences differ from theirs and how they bring that to work so that they can appreciate that the differences that we bring to the workspace are stem from our lived experiences. We are our lived experiences. And I don't think that leaders take the time to really think and appreciate that. And so if you have cultural competence training from a perspective of who we, who you are, understanding who you are, understand your whole self, understanding others and being willing to be open and aware and appreciate others, then you can, then you can take the time to step back and really think about how your actions impact others, right? And that's that's the overlap to cultural sensitivity in some regards, but because um, cultural sensitivity, when I think of that term, I think you needing to be able to be sensitive to other people's culture, but it's bigger than the culture, right? It's the whole person, right? And not just who they are, where they came from, but their lived experiences as well. So those types of trainings that help people fully understand who they are, what their lived experiences are, how they come to work, how they bring that to work every day, and then being open to how to um, give, how to interpret other people's lived experiences by giving them the opportunity to share that, right? And being vulnerable enough to share that lived experience and, and appreciate and value and take in that other person's lived experience and, and be able to look at the world from another person's lived experiences based upon your, your interaction with them, right? Many leaders tend to just operate in a bubble where they interface with just those that look like them. And so when you have opportunities to interact with other people that don't look like you, that don't have the shared lived experience and be vulnerable enough to share your own lived experience, you will not only find that their different lived experiences help bring innovation and, and value to the workspace, but also that there are some things that are likely similar in lived experiences. And I do agree. It is um, often underrated. Okay. Two more questions. I promise. Sure. If, if you could ask one question to 100 of your peers in corporate or C-suite leadership, what question would you ask them? What percentage of your Black and Latino employees enjoy their jobs and feel they have equal access to opportunities for advancement in your company? Ooh. I think that many, um, many companies that are doing anything in this DEI space, they have surveys or someone has audited their um, employee population and, and conducted a, a survey. But I want to know the actual percentage of Black and Latino. I don't want to know just about your entire employee population. I want to know about your people of color. I want to know about your Black and Latino people. Like, are they happy? Like, are you asking them, are they happy? Do they feel that they have advancement opportunities within your company? Because that's what is going to move the needle and benefit those people. And that's what, if, if, if you're really buying into the idea that equity and inclusion is something that is critical for your company to succeed in the, in, in the world today, then you will want to take focus on what, how to advance your Black and Latino employees in your current workspace. And if they're not given those opportunities, then you're not creating an equitable opportunity environment for them. And so that means that there's, there's something for you to do to change that. Absolutely. I, I love this question. It goes into discussions I have often when we do recruiting, 
which is, oh, we have great benefits. Our employees love them. I said, all of them? He's, they're like, right. oh, most of them. And I'll ask, well, what percentage don't like it? And they look at mm-hmm. me crazy. And, and it's simply, if you're creating equity in your workspace, you need to know who are those employees that aren't taking advantage of certain benefits and why and oh, who my. they are. Because, oh, our health insurance is great, but if they don't have access in their neighborhood and they're having to take three buses and two trains or it's an hour commute, they're a day of work just for a child that has a cold. And it's really important. Or if it's great, but it's great for just a few because only a few can actually afford the copay because their salary is just so low. You know, like that doesn't equate. That doesn't even make sense. It, It doesn't. I worked for an organization many years ago what you paid for your health insurance was based on what your salary was. So <gasps> for the janitor, you did not pay the same thing as the CEO. Nice. You, it was scaled. Nice. And I have yet to find anybody else that is doing, I'm sure there are other places, because this is literally more than 15 years ago, but the fact they were that far ahead and they scale mm-hmm. benefits so that it was based off a of salary and not just like everybody pays it because that's not equity in the workplace. I love that. I love that. So, okay. So last question. What kind of data would you like to have access to as a diversity and inclusion leader? Uh, I really like seeing the actual numbers. Percentages are good. Um, and, and I've done some research in, in at online for certain companies just to try to see what their diversity data is and I love when they show the percentages but you then don't even know the percentage of what right because you don't know what their entire population is so you can't get to the number right so I like seeing actual numbers so for me any data that any data is good right I like data but any data that does not center whiteness by lumping everyone else in the BIPOC or POC category I'm here for it. I, 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 because as a black Latina, I want to know how are the black, how are the, how are the Latina, how are the, how are the Asian, how, how are the people of color that are not just lumped in together? How are they doing? I don't, I don't like seeing data, um, represented as, um, all, all people, like all of their, and then BIPOC, which means that, that all is really inclusive of white, right? It, it's not, they're not willing to do the work to go and ask the questions or pull the data because there's, there's value in the data. And yes. when a company's not willing to show, well, unfortunately we only have one black male executive in the company. But if you look at the BIPOC number, it's like 23%. Yeah, because you've got other people of other ethnicities in there. And that's not bad. But I want to know, because I care about the advancement of the Black individual. I care about the advancement of the Latina individual, right? And, not, and I, it's, it's important for me to know that number. Because if you say you're a company that wants to advance equity, equity does not just apply to the 23%. Equity applies to that Black person who's the only individual in the company on the leadership team. Like, how do we ensure that there's more of him? or more of her and she's and he are not the only ones representing their entire ethnicity. But that's what I'm about. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, break it out, put in that intersectionality, gender, race, absolutely. age, uh, sexual orientation, um, differently able. Like we wanna know where, where you are in your organization when it comes to marginalized people. I absolutely agree, absolutely agree. 
This has been fantastic. Oh my God. I can't believe we're out of time. Oh my goodness. This is so much fun. Thank you so much, Michelle. (laughs) Can you let our audience know where they can connect with you? Sure. Uh, So my name again is Luas Kanonen. I can be found on LinkedIn as Luas Kanonen, L-U-A-S-K-Y-A-N-O-N-O-N. Um, I'm sure that Michelle will put that information in the show notes. And um, my website is equityprincipal.com, where I have my consulting company listed with all the services that we offer. So feel free to connect with me there. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been absolutely fantastic. I love having a lawyer's perspective. Did y'all feel like I, I, I can do this? I can do, you can this. do this. Definitely. We can do it. All right. Thank you, everybody. Until next time, have a great week and keep pushing to bring change and equity in the workplace. Bye, everybody. Yes, yes. Bye.